Well, I will tell you that I think my favorite part of the week is the moment when I get to stand here and say, open your Bibles too, and I see all of you do it. Uh, Because we are about to hear the voice of God, and that is a wonderful thing, a privilege for us. So, open your Bibles to John chapter 14. All right, Uh, we're going to dive back into this wonderful text, and there is some very powerful truth in front of us this morning that we need to consume and understand together. You know, in John chapter 14, verse 6, it was a text that we covered a couple of weeks ago now. We really found the table of contents to this whole section that is known as the upper room discourse. You remember that verse well, I'm sure, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, and oftentimes I think we have the tendency to zero in on that image as Jesus being the way because it's such a clear image. And we we affirm, obviously, that he is the only truth. And last week as we talked about that, we, we rightly say amen. But then we have a really bad tendency to gloss over that that last part, that he is also the life. And and that is very regrettable because that's actually the meat of Jesus' message here in the Upper Room Discourse. See, he's going to spend the next two chapters unpacking this idea of what it means for him to be the life. And so today, as we, as we seek to undertake a study and an examination of what it means for Jesus to be the life, we're really kind of embarking upon a bit of a journey as we seek to understand what does it mean for Jesus to be your life. And so as we come back to John chapter 14 this morning, we're going to pick it up in verse 15, because this really is the point in the text where Jesus takes up consideration of what it means for him to be the life. And if you look with me there at verse 15, you'll find that Jesus makes this statement. He says very clearly, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. See, and in in that statement, we find for ourselves a little bit of a mission impossible kind of scenario. See, it's not one of the death-defying, stunt, globe-trotting variety where the hero invariably wins. No, I'm talking about an actual impossible mission. Because on your own, this little statement, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, is utterly impossible. You want proof of that? You don't have to look beyond the room that these men are in right now. See, the upper room discourse begins back at the beginning of chapter 13 with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and and Peter reacts to that and essentially says, Lord, I love you so much and will be faithful to you unto death. I I love you so much that I I will die for you. That's the mission that Peter seeks to undertake where he says, I do love you and I will keep your commandments. And Jesus' response to Peter is to say, No, you won't, because you can't. And as the story plays out, see, Peter's intention to love and obey, it lasts just about as long as it took him to utter the words. 
Because by the time the morning sun is going to rise, Peter will have already betrayed the Lord. He will have already turned his back upon him. He will already have disobeyed him. He will already have forfeited and been unfaithful to his commandments. And he will have proved that his love for Jesus was indeed lacking. You see, for Peter, at least at this particular point in time, this command in verse 15 to love and obey Christ wasn't just difficult. It was utterly impossible. Now... With that set in your mind, fast forward the tape 50 years to the point where the Apostle John, another occupant of the room, is writing his first epistle, the epistle of 1 John. And you get to a text like 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, and what you will find there is John quoting the words of Jesus from the very text that's in front of us this morning, but he adds some personal commentary to it. And here's what John says. Listen carefully. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, wait just a minute. How could the commands of Christ go from being impossible for Peter but not burdensome to John? What is it that changed? What's the the pivot point, if you will, at which we go from mission impossible to mission possible? What is it that we need to understand that Peter did not understand at this moment, but John would go on to understand? Well, see, the whole point of this chapter is Jesus introducing these men to the X factor, if you will, that is going to make this kind of empowered, successful life possible. See, Jesus has been telling them all chapter long, if you'll remember, I'm going away so that I can send you something better. To be most precise, he was going away so that he could send them someone better who was going to make all the difference in the world to their ability to actually know and live with Christ. Someone who brings all the fullness of God's life to you today. And that, my friends, is the very beating heart of what it means for Jesus to not only be the way and the truth, but also that he is your life. He's not just the way to God and the truth about God. God. No, he's also the all-empowering life from God. And your mission, my mission to obey Christ and love him, should we choose to accept it, becomes doable only because we have the spirit of his life now living inside of us. And that's what we've gathered to understand today. So, This week and next, we're going to unpack this concept of the life that has been granted to us. And today, we're going to establish the definition of this life and the power that is ours for the living of it. And then the next time that we're together, we're going to look at the benefits of this life and all of the results that flow from it. So let's go ahead and just dig into the text and hear from God that truth that he has for us to understand this morning. Let's start by establishing the definition of life. See, as Jesus has already explained here, we've already seen what it means for him to be the way. In order for you and I to be reconciled to God, you and I must believe through faith in the sufficient work and words of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to find reconciliation to God. It's through the work of Christ. 
And then he's also explained to us already what it means for him to be the truth. See, he is the perfect revelation of God's nature to you. And now, rather than God existing in some remote place, unknown to you, invisible to you, no, now he is fully knowable and comprehensible. Why? Because Jesus isn't just the way, he is also the truth. And there is no source of truth apart from him. We saw that last time. So you want to know God? Well, Jesus is the truth from God and the way to God. But... If you want to keep walking with God, that's where you need to know Jesus as the life. And that's where we've got to get down into this text here this morning. See, see, we've already had the life defined for us. You'll remember in John chapter 17, verse 3. Well, actually, you might not remember because we haven't gotten that far yet. But you will remember it at some point in the future once we get there. (laughs) Jesus... He explicitly defines for us what eternal life actually is, the substance of us. Let me read that text for you. This, Jesus says, is eternal life. He's praying to his Father. That they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ himself, whom you have sent. See, that, my friends, is the definition of life. It's the ability to know God. And what is it that is going to characterize your life if you know God? Well, that's what Jesus is getting at here in chapter 14, verse 15. You are going to have a relationship with God that is defined by the element of love between you. God shows you his love and your love in return back. To him. See, love is always the glue or the commodity that that makes a relationship work. And, And that's what he's pointing to here. The word that Jesus uses when he talks about loving God is a word that means to value or to cherish or to highly esteem. It means that now you've got the capacity and the ability where once you were blind, now you can see. See what? You have the ability to see the value of who God is. And therefore, you can highly esteem him for who he is. You can respond to him. You have now been made alive so that where once you were dead, now you've got the capacity to have a relationship to him. That's what Jesus is pointing at when he says, you've got the ability now to not just know me, but to love me also. See, that's what we have to understand. And we we know this, don't we? We know that every relationship is demonstrated on the back of love. That's the commodity by which relationship is made known. And we get that at a human level. I mean, what what does the exercise of relationship look like between a husband and a wife, for instance? What does the relationship or what does love look like in the exercise of a relationship between a a parent and, and a child? See, relationship, it's always defined by the expression of love between us. For instance, when I go to put my children to bed every night, I don't express relationship to them by shouting at them, good night, and never forget, children, I am your father. That's not how you express relationship. How do you express relationship? You say instead, good night, and I, what? Love you. But see, in a true, genuine relationship with true and genuine love, it's not just enough to say, I love you, and call it a day. 
You've got to demonstrate that because better than saying that you love someone is showing them that you love them. True love, true relationship, it always evidences itself in action towards one another. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to here where he says, if you love me, if you have a relationship to me that's defined by our love between each other, then you are going to show it. You are going to keep my commandments. You know, the power of that statement was driven home to me a number of years ago when my girls were younger. And I don't remember exactly which one of them this happened with, but, but they were busy at work learning the reality of both their boundaries and my parental authority and rights. And see, I had given them, whichever one it was, some very clear instruction that unfortunately had not been followed. And so I began to engage in some parental correction, you might say. And I asked the question, look, I told you to do X and you went out and did Y. Help me understand what you were thinking. And their response was to deploy the old tried and true melt your old man heart melt your old man's heart approach as they said that I, I i don't know what i was thinking but but i i love you daddy <laughs> i mean what do you say in response to that right well what came out of my mouth was was this statement if you loved me you would have obeyed me and then i stopped in my tracks, realizing that I had just become a living, breathing illustration of everything that is wrong, not in my relationship to my daughter, but to my relationship to my Lord. Because the very same thing that I was confronting her about is the very same thing that I am so very often guilty of in response to him. And see, that really gets down to the heart of the problem that we find here in verse 15. The very question and issue that we started off with this morning because we're running squarely into a really significant issue. If, if life is defined as me walking now in loving obedience and relationship to Christ, you and I are incapable of that. See, on my own, like Peter, I can't love him like this. On my own, I can't obey him this consistently as he expects me to. On my own, I can't have this kind of life. I can't do, verse 15, which is why it becomes so very important, people, that we understand this concept of Jesus being the life. Because if it were up to me, this life is now impossible. No, I need his life now resident within me so that I can have this kind of relationship. Because apart from him, this is a foreign language to me, you see. And that's what Jesus is going to go on to explain and express to us next. Having defined life for us, the ability to know him, walk with him, in relationship to him, to love him and to obey him. If that's life, it's beyond my capacity to, to, to accomplish that or to, to have that or, or to gain that. Instead, I need to be empowered for that kind of living. I need to have that kind of life living inside of me. And see, now we're getting down to the brass tacks of the superiority of what Jesus is offering to us here in this chapter. See, Peter had this gap in coverage where he had no ability to actually follow through on the things that he had stated were his intentions. 
Because when push came to shove, he proved himself as a man to be weak. And he had no spirit of God indwelling him to, to strengthen him. And so, so he fails. But see, all of that power that Peter needed but didn't have, Jesus was going to fill that gap with himself. And that is what he goes on to explain here in these next verses. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Jesus has said, here's the expectation. You'll love me. You'll keep my commandments. Knowing that's impossible for you, listen now. Verse 16. So, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor does it know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. You know, I think if there was ever a moment where I wished I could see the face of Jesus as he uttered words, it would be this moment. Because he is coming here to say to his men, you're going to fail, but I am going to change everything for you permanently. There is no going back to that old way from here on out, gentlemen. You're going to have the power that you need to live successfully for me. And see where the chapter began with him deeply troubled in spirit because of what was coming and because of what had just happened with Judas's betrayal as he walked out. Now Jesus is with just these 11 men. And I think you can hear the sound of his voice sparkle and crackle in this text with excitement and exuberance as he comes to them and says, here's what I am going to make possible for you guys. Do you not get the significance of the moment here? Do you not get what I'm offering to you? See, they've been asking questions, how and what and why and when? And Jesus says, just sit still and be quiet for a moment and listen and you'll see because this is what I'm going to do for you gentlemen now. See, there's an excitement that had to be there. And I think that if we had been there, we would have seen it. And oh, how I wish I could have seen that level of excitement on his face and hear it in his voice, knowing that he is giving this blessing and this benefit, not just to those men in the room, but to me, to me as well making that offer to you that now you could live this kind of life because you've got the power that you need to have and for the living of it resident within you. See, the words that Jesus utters here in verses 16 through 17, he's, he's basically striking a match and lighting the fuse on the glory of the new covenant. I mean, you all remember, don't you, the words that God gives to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 26, where he says, listen, I am going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I am going to put within you. And in the process, I'm going to rip out of you the old heart of stone from your flesh. And I'm going to plant within its place a heart now of flesh that beats for me and is capable of having a relationship with me. And so here's how I'm going to do that. I, he says there in Ezekiel 36, 27, will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And now the time for that spirit, the time for that new kind of empowered life, it had arrived. And that's why I say there had to be an, an exuberant, enthusiastic excitement on the part of Christ to make this all-important change for his men. And that's why these next verses read the way they do. You want the power for living? Then you need the life of Christ's Spirit resident within you. That's power for life. And now, with that enabling power, there is no spiritual mission that is impossible for you. 
All of a sudden, the lights, they all blink green and we trip over into a very different kind of life for these apostles and for us. Now, see, instead of being on Mission Impossible, you find yourself in pursuit of Mission Possible. So, so let's look at the nature of this power, where it comes from, and I will warn you up front, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at this power that Jesus Christ has offered us for our lives. Let's start by looking at the source of this power power that he gives to us here. And you can see the importance of it right there in verse 16 as the verse begins with the conjunction that starts that verse. See, the only way that you can hope to keep the commands of Christ and love Christ is as he sends you the empowering Holy Spirit to assist you. Verse 15 and verse 16 aren't just two random verses squashed up together. No, verse 16 empowers verse 15. Without verse 16, verse 15 is utterly impossible. But with verse 16, verse 15 now becomes very probable. See, where does all of this power that he's giving here come from? It comes from the Father at the request of the Son. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give to you. See, as one commentator says at this point, Jesus is very much aware that the fulfillment of his expectation was going to necessitate a resource of divine proportions. And so, friends, that is exactly what Jesus orders up on our behalf. He makes a request here to the Father. Now, it's very important that we understand the nature of that request. See, the language that Jesus is speaking here in the text has four different words that all bear the, the same essential meaning of lodging a request with someone. But there's fine nuance to each of those different terms. Let me give them to you because I think it's important to understand the nature of the word that Jesus is using here. See, the first of those words means for an inferior to ask a superior for something. That is not the word that Jesus uses here. The second word means for a superior to ask an inferior something. That is not the word that Jesus uses here. The third word means to ask repetitively over and over and over again with urgency because you're not quite sure what the answer is going to be. And that is certainly not the nature of the word here. See, the fourth and final word, the one that is used here, is a word that means to instruct a peer with urgency, having confidence in the answer that will come. It's an instruction that borders on, it's, it's a request that borders on an instruction. It means to urgently direct attention towards knowing the results of. Let me illustrate this for you this way. See, in, in modern warfare, there are special operators who will often get inserted behind enemy lines, but they're never inserted without the appropriate level of air support behind them. And occasionally when they get into a jam or a scrape and more force is required than they've got access to, those units have the authority already built in to call in air support. They don't need to ask anybody for permission to rain down fire from the skies. They don't have to wonder if we call it in, will it come? No, they know. If I radio in the coordinates, the necessary firepower comes raining down from the sky, shaking the very earth with fury. Friends, that is the kind of request that Jesus is making here. 
He is calling down awesome power from heaven so that you and I can have the necessary support and empowerment that we must have to live the life that he's offering here. He's not asking the Father for permission here. He's not bombarding heaven with repetitive requests, wondering is the Father actually going to follow through or not? See, Jesus, he's not approaching the Father as some lesser kind of being. No, he is one with the Father. He and the Father, see, they... They share the same nature, the same will, the same authority. And so here then is the fruit of that reality for us. Jesus has all authority on, in heaven and on earth given to him to direct spiritual firepower, if you will, from heaven down into the lives of his followers. And that's the power, the power of the Holy Spirit that now proceeds from both the Father and the Son into the heart of every single person who comes to him as the way and clings to him as the truth. See, here's what you need to understand is that these men heard this for the first time and they're scratching their heads saying, what is that going to be like? Because they had never actually experienced it. The words of Jesus in the text, you can see it right there. They're, they're future words. See, the coming of this helper, the coming of the Spirit, it is still future tense. Jesus says, I will ask my Father. It hadn't yet occurred. It was around the corner, but it was still future. So they had no capacity to understand yet the meaning of what this was going to look like. But for you and for me, the firepower has already been trained. The airstrike has already been called and the power of heaven, it has already been deployed in support of your life. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ the way and cling to him as the truth, the life is now bestowed upon you at the direct request, the instructions of the Son, and he now sends the Spirit from the Father by his request down into your life. And you have already been empowered for the living of this life that he has given to you. See, that is the source from where your ability and your power for living comes. It comes from the hand of God at the instruction of the Son. And now it resides within you already. So, now that we see where it came from, this power that is within us, let's try to understand the nature of it here just a little bit. And that's where Jesus goes next. He says, the Father and I are going to send you another helper. Now, let's break down the meaning of what it means that, that he has given to us another helper. Let's seek to understand that just a little bit because Jesus here calls the spirit that he is sending a helper for us. What, what kind of helper is he talking about? Well, that's a little challenging for us to understand because the word that Jesus uses here for helper is a word that has an exceptionally wide semantic range of potential meanings. There actually isn't a word in the English language that fully wraps its arms around the fullness of the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. So we need to seek to understand this just a little bit more. Now, if I took a poll here this morning about how this word is translated in your Bible, I suspect that I would find a number of different possible translations. Some of your Bibles might refer to him like mine does as a helper. Some of your Bibles might refer to him as being a comforter. Some of your Bibles might find him being referred to here as being an advocate. Some of you might find your Bibles calling him an encourager. 
Some of you might find your Bibles calling him a counselor. And all of those translations would be legitimate translations of the word that is used here because the idea really wraps its arms all the way around all of them. See, the word here is, is the word paraclete, which many of you may have heard as a reference to the Holy Spirit. And in its most basic sense, it means someone who comes alongside another for the purpose of providing assistance. So helper is probably the best term here. But even that term in English is a little weak because what does the idea of helping someone imply? It implies that I'm coming alongside of you to just give you a little nudge and get you, get you over the finish line. I was at a volleyball game, for instance, yesterday, and the girls were shouting the whole time as the ball was raining down on them, help it, help it, right? What did what, they mean by that? Just bump it, bump it, right? That, that's what they were meaning. When you use the word help that way, it does not do justice to what Jesus is meaning here when he's referring to the Spirit as being the helper. See, the Spirit doesn't just come into your life and just give you a little smidge of help to get you from where you were close to the line across the line. That, that is not the intention of this title for him to help you. See, what the Spirit does when he comes into your life, the way by which he helps you, is to take that which was previously completely impossible and make it totally possible. See, he is the difference between your utter inability and now your newfound ability. He is the difference between Peter's spectacular failure and John's statement, his commands are no longer burdensome to me. The difference is the presence of the Spirit. That is the nature of his comprehensive aid to us. So now how does the Spirit help us in that comprehensive, profound kind of a way? Well, that's where you have to keep reading because Jesus renames the helper and explains the nature of his ministry to us when he calls him even the Spirit of truth there in verse 17. See, he's the Spirit of truth. That is the way by which he aids and assists and helps and comforts and encourages and counsels us. And so now we got to understand what that means. See, the Holy Spirit of God that is now living within you, he's not just marked by the quality of having truth. No, he gives truth. He defends truth. He enlightens using the truth. He enlivens using the truth. And now that comprehensive spirit of truth who is both defined by it and exercising it, he is now the one who is living within you. Now, you might well say here at this point, hang on, wait just a second. You stood up here last week and told us that Jesus is the truth because that's what he claimed to be. So if Jesus is the truth, how can the spirit be the spirit of truth? Well, that's because they're one, you see. Just as Jesus is the truth and God is the father of truth, so too is the spirit, the spirit of truth. You see, they all being one in essence are defined by the condition of being true. See, just as the father is the definition of truth and the son is the display of truth, now the spirit is the one who delivers that truth. And so, so we have to ask ourselves the question, how does the Spirit do that? Well, he does it as he illuminates for us the Word of God, bringing you now, because he's resident in you, to a place where you can comprehend, 
and apply the truth that is found in the Scripture. That's why Jesus is going to say to these men just a few verses later in verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the one the Father will send in my name, His ministry to you is going to be to teach you all things, all truth, and bring to your remembrance. How is he going to do that? By bringing to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, the Spirit teaches us that which we must know about the person of the Father and the Son as He illuminates for us the words of Christ, the Word of God. And so if you were to do a biblical survey on what this ministry of the Spirit looks like for you now in your life, here is what you would find. The Spirit is the one who brings the power of truth to bear upon your heart. You see, he shines the spotlight of God's truth as stated in his word deep down into the darkest recesses of your life, convicting and confronting you using the truth. And then when you choose to run from that conviction, he pursues and overtakes you with the truth. And when finally you come to arrest, he reminds you of the truth about the person of Christ using the word of Christ. And when you begin to doubt the spirit within you, he's going to shore up your faith using the truth of the Bible. When your vision of Christ becomes cloudy, he, he uses the truth of scripture to clarify it. When your flesh is so very strong... It is the spirit resident within you who brings to your mind the truth of the scripture to make you stronger. And when your faith is weak, he uses the truth to build you up and preserve you until the day he delivers you right across heaven's threshold into the very physical presence of God. See, that's what it means for this spirit to be the spirit of truth. And now he, being sent from the Father at the request of the Son, is the one that Jesus says takes up residence within you. Friend, what a powerful help that is. But, but I want you to get this. See, this is not some just brief infomercial that Jesus is giving to us here about the coming power of the Spirit. No, this is a permanent promise. Look with me there at what Jesus says next about the extent of this power. Literally, Jesus says here in the text, this other helper is going to be literally with you unto the ages and forever. See, Jesus' intention here is to make sure that his followers are never, ever alone again. That they are never, ever weak again. His intention is to make sure that they are now perpetually empowered for the living of the Christian life because they have his life resident within them. See, never again would Peter face a night as dark as this one. From here on out, his burden was going to be light and the yoke of Christ for him was going to be easy. The only way that's possible is if the Spirit of God lives in you for all of eternity. The commands of Christ would not be, according to John, burdensome ever again. You see, this spirit of truth that Jesus is giving here, once you've got him, he never leaves you, nor does he forsake you nor does he forget you. See, friend, he doesn't just walk with you when you're being good. 
No, your union with him is so very profound that even when you walk in a way to bring him grief, you cannot shake him off. See, he doesn't just stick with you through the ups of life. No, he stays with you through the downs as well. Get this. He doesn't just stay with you through to the end of life and then once you're done, he walks away. No, Jesus says here that he will stay with you forever, ushering you across the chasm of death through the gates of heaven where you will be in his presence forevermore, a companionship that is so very thorough and profound that the scriptures can, can truly say, in a place like Ephesians 1.13, that when, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, who is now for you the guarantee of our inheritance until we actually acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, that's the extent of what Jesus is offering here. A permanent intimate kind of presence, but not just any kind of presence, a presence that is so profound that we're told in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 that now you and I have the fullness of God dwelling within us. And that's a very important statement to understand. See, it's not as though you've got one third of God with you now and the the other two thirds are going to be granted to you later after you die. No, if you have the Holy Spirit because he is one with Christ and Christ is one with the Father, you've got the fullness of God's presence now dwelling deep down inside of you. And this is what, what Jesus has been explaining to us already here in John 14, that the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, the Spirit is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and so now too are we in the Son, and the Son is in us as we have the Spirit. Because God is one, we have the fullness of God, the totality of His nature now resident within us. And so that's what it means to be now united in Christ. Just as the Father indwells the Son and the Son indwells the Spirit, now too so does the Spirit indwell us. And so we're caught up into the nature of God himself. That does not mean that we become gods. Let's be very clear. It does mean, though, that we have the fullness of God's power forever living in us, conforming us into the character and image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You want to know the power of God deployed in your life so that you might live a successful Christian life? Well, Jesus says, that's what I'm giving you in my spirit. That's what you have. That's the extent of the power. It's the fullness of God resident within you for the rest of eternity. That's what he's offering. But see, we keep going here. And Jesus explains a little bit more about the exclusivity of this power. Friend, it is very important that you and I, we understand that this is not a power that is just available to anybody. No, it is only available to those who come to Christ in faith. Seeking God with Jesus as the way, clinging to his nature, knowing that Jesus is the truth. Look with me there at verse 17. Jesus says, look, the world cannot receive this helper, this spirit of truth, because it cannot see. It neither sees him nor does it know him. See, the implication here is that the power of the spirit that will bring you the life of Christ, it isn't up for grabs. 
No, it is a good and perfect gift that comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It is a gift, a good gift, that he only gives to those whom the Son recognizes as his own. Now do you see the importance of coming to Jesus as the way? Seeing Jesus as being the only truth? Because until you come to him, there is no life for you. There is no power for living. You're still embarked upon mission impossible. And the statement, if you love me, you'll obey me, that, we- that may as well be spoken in like a Martian kind of language because you have exactly zero ability to do it at all. But with this great gift of the Holy Spirit, where now you can see and can know him, you are one of those on whom the favor of Jesus Christ has rested And now your life has been empowered for both the loving and the obeying. So will you live like it? Friend, if you claim to know Christ and you've come to understand Christ as being the way and the truth, then you have to live as though you have the life resident within you because that's exactly where it is. Look at how Jesus finishes verse 17. He finishes it with a statement about the location of this power. See, as we've been saying all chapter long, the only thing better than walking with Christ in the flesh is having the Spirit of Christ living inside you. And that's what Jesus points to here when when he says, look, in contrast to the world who cannot see him, cannot know him, you do know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, when Jesus says you do know him, He is talking exclusively there to the 11 men that were listening to him in that upper room. The reason that they would be able to recognize the nature of the Spirit is because that Spirit had been dwelling with them or alongside of them through the ministry of Jesus Christ. You remember when the baptism of Christ takes place and the Holy Spirit from God descends upon him? It never left. See, the totality of the ministry of Christ was indwelt by the power and presence of the Spirit of God. And so for three years plus, these men have been witnessing the nature and identity of the Spirit as he rested upon Christ. And it's why Jesus can say here, you know this spirit. This isn't going to be confusing for you when he shows up. You will recognize him because he has been dwelling with you for the past three years. But here's the key difference. Now, instead of just being here with you, he is actually going to take up his residence inside of you. He will be in you, and so then will you know life. Jesus goes on to explain that just a little bit further down in chapter 14, where he says very clearly that the Father and I will come and make our home inside of you. See, now with the Spirit resident within. You've got the Father and the Son, their purposes and plans and power living inside of you. That's the glory of what Jesus is offering here. That's what it means for him to be the life. And if you want to see whether or not this actually works, well, I invite you this week to just go read the book of Acts 
Because in the book of Acts, what do you find? You find mousy men being utterly transformed into mighty titans of the faith. How did that happen? Not because of anything that was true about them, but rather because of what was true about who was now in them. You see, this power that Jesus is offering here, it is the power to transform. It is the power to conform. It is the power to deny and kill the flesh and to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, because now you've got the capacity to walk by the power of the Spirit instead of the power of your flesh. So we've seen how this impacted these men and what it changed for them. But this morning, I want us to close by just considering what all of this means for us. What does it mean for us now to have the life of Christ resident within us today? Well, friend, it means the difference between success and failure in your Christian walk. It means the difference between mission impossible and mission accomplished. And the Apostle Paul, he explains that to us very, very clearly. So let's, let's move our way out of John 14 and out of this upper room as these statements pertain to just these 11 men. And let's go over for a moment to Romans chapter 7 as we conclude and see how these statements pertain to us. What does it look like when you live the Christian life in your own strength? What does it look like when you set out to say, like Peter did, I love you and I will be faithful to you because I will do it? What is the result of that approach going to be in your life? Well, listen very carefully now. Paul says, I don't understand my own actions. What I do not do, for I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I've got the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the very evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. See, that is what a life looks like that is lived apart from the indwelling power of the life of Christ the power of the Holy Spirit within you. If, if you try to live the Christian life in your own strength, according to the power of your flesh, your life is going to look like Romans chapter 7. Because that's a description of someone who tries to love and obey Christ on their own, independently from the power of the Spirit. And the result is utter, total failure. Now I would ask you just, in a very pastoral moment, if, as I read that text, does that sound uncomfortably familiar to you? I'm sure it does, because I know we all face these moments where we do not walk by the power of the Spirit, but seek to walk according to the power of the flesh. And if you read that text and you say, yeah, unfortunately, that does sound like my experience. Well, friend, there's one of two potentialities there. Either A, you, you've never come to Christ as being the way and the truth, and you don't know him, and you don't have his spirit, so of course you don't have his power, and this is your, this is your life. Or it means that you are in Christ, but you don't know what it means to walk by the power of the spirit. 
And, and that is where Paul goes next in Romans chapter 8. And if you want some homework this week, I would encourage you to read chapter 8 because the whole chapter is an explanation of what walking by the power of the Spirit looks like. This is what is now available to you because Jesus is the life within you. Don't satisfy yourself with Romans chapter 7 and say, well, I guess that's just the way it is. It doesn't have to be. It shouldn't be. Your experience should look more like Romans chapter 8, having the Spirit of God within you. So what does that look like? Well, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's what we've been talking about. Skip ahead to verse 13. So if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God. They are the sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we now cry, Abba, Father, help us, God, the Spirit himself bearing witness with your spirit that you are the child of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Friend, that's the essence of spiritual life, that you've got the ability and the capacity now to not just live in relationship to God, knowing him, but that 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 knowledge now, it translates into a love for him, a love that is so empowered by his life within you that now you've got the ability to obey and keep his commands. See, on your own, that's impossible. But with the Spirit of God resident within you, everything changes. What was the difference, I ask you, between Peter's impossible mission, where he failed so spectacularly, and and John's statement, Jesus' commands aren't burdensome? Friend, it's the ability that now is resident within you to walk by the power of the Spirit of Christ who now lives inside of you. And that, my friends, that is the meaning of life. Next time that we're together, we'll look at the benefits of this life that are brought to us by the Spirit, the results of what a life looks like that is indwelt by the Spirit, but that's for next time. I think that's enough for now. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for this gift of your spirit that has been granted to us is an evidence of your kindness and your grace. It is an evidence that you do indeed care for us and that you love us. We now have access to the power of your nature living within us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would indeed cause us with that awareness to walk by the power of the Spirit, to say no to our flesh, and to demonstrate our love for Christ through our obedience to Christ. On our own, we could never do it. But you are to us the life, and you have given it now to us. We thank you for that reality, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand together with me, and we'll close our time by reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Go in grace with that knowledge this week.